my country is being tested by this hailstorm called Super Typhoon Haiyan. The initial assessment showed that Haiyan left a wake of massive destruction that is unprecedented, unthinkable. This is Yeb Sanyo, Commissioner in Climate Change Lead Negotiator for the Philippines. The reality that is climate change, I dare them, I dare them to get off their ivory towers and away from the comfort of their armchairs. I dare them to go to the islands of the Pacific, the Caribbean, the Indian Ocean, and see the impacts of rising sea He's levels. speaking at the 2013 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, Conference of Parties in Warsaw. We can take drastic action now to ensure that we prevent a future where super typhoons become a way of life. These negotiations have been going on for 20 years now. Calls to action are not exactly unusual. But what happened next was... I wish to speak on a more personal note. Super Typhoon Haiyan made landfall in my own family's hometown. And the devastation is staggering. I struggle to find words even for the images that we see on the news coverage. And I struggle to find words to describe how I feel about the losses. Up to this hour, I agonize, waiting for words to the fate of my very own relatives. Sir President, in solidarity with my countrymen who are struggling to find food back home, and with my brother who has not had food for the last three days, with all due respect, Mr. President, I will now commence a voluntary fasting for the climate. This means I will voluntarily refrain from eating food during this COP until a meaningful outcome is in sight. And just for some quick clarifications, COP refers to Conference of Parties, the annual negotiation session on climate change. We'll get to more of these. But anyway, at the UN climate negotiations, that is the biggest drop of the microphone possible. This is Adam Pearson for Green Grid Radio. I was at this conference and saw Yeb's speech. The COP meeting was crazy. Uh, others can attest to that. And all the environmental center alcoholics. I just mean like hardcore drinkers. Like every time I've ever been to anything involving climate activism, we do like hardcore work all day for like hours and hours and hours. And the night is just like drinking your, your ass off. Next day you do the exact same thing all over again. Because you need to. Because like what are you going to do with like... IPCC reports and shit. Like, you see that. Like, how are you not going to drink after reading that ever? <laughs> it's true. The 19th United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties took place in Warsaw in the middle of November 2013. Repeat attendees affectionately and mockingly call the annual event a circus. And indeed it was. But did Yeb's all-in approach to fasting yield dividends or just circus peanuts in the three-ring negotiations? I'll share with you some of my impressions on the conference itself and perspectives on the Yeb Sanyo fasting story. By the way, I'm going to call him Yeb from time to time, as you might have noticed already. Um, we're also talking today about power and inequality between nations in the UN and between generations. And eventually we'll get to what happened at COP19 and... What's going on today? This is Green Gear Radio. I'm Adam Pearson again, here with Mallory Smith. We're talking about young people, civil society, and what they can do at COP. And we're bringing you the voices of climate change negotiators like Yep Sanyo 
and civil society observers like yours truly. Before we launch into the rest of the show, I just want to give listeners a heads up on the production timeline of this episode. Mallory and I spoke in April of 2014, and all the interview audio was collected in Warsaw in November of 2013. Production has taken a little bit longer, but we've kept all the content as updated as possible. Thanks for listening. Part 1. Fast for the Climate Let me ask you, Mallory, do you remember what was going on in world events in the middle of November of 2013? What would you say? I would say terrible happenings in Syria. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably what I would be able to link most to that month. I don't think I would be able to link Typhoon Haiyan to November. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you remembered like, it, it was like 2013. Yeah, I remember that it yeah, was last yeah. year, yeah. But it was like a blip, you know? That's why it was so crazy to watch this video. It's like, wow, that happened. And it was such a different reaction than when I heard a news story about it, you know, back in November, like once. You heard one news story. Maybe, yeah, one or two. We already heard a bit of Yeb's speech about Typhoon Haiyan, one of the strongest typhoons ever recorded and the deadliest in the history of the Philippines. The Indian Ocean and see the impacts of rising sea levels, what my country is going through as a result of this. It was my first day at the event and I had no idea even what it is that I was doing there really still at this point. All the, the youth people and all the NGOs who were there, they completely froze and they, they didn't do what everyone had planned to do as a group together. We, we came and marched in because everybody was just, I mean, I remember I just started crying and everybody around us was just crying because it was so clearly from the heart and really crazy to be thrown into this uh, my first day. That video gave me the chills when he got to the part when he said, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? If not us, then who? If not now, then when? If not here, not here then where? Then I where? was just, I don't know, my shoulders were all scrunched up and I was, it was very powerful. How do regular folks step into the UN process? Climate change as an issue is such a mountain of a challenge. Civil society organizations can formally participate in this process as observers. So what's it like to be at these negotiations for them? Turns out that Yeb's story had a big influence on civil society. And a few people from the youth and NGO community also wanted to demonstrate how strongly they identified with Yeb's sentiment. The most inspiring and kind of reflective moment I had is when I ran into him later in the day and told him about members of Sustainus's intentions and in sparking a wider fasting campaign. Here's Ryan Madden, a Sustain Us delegate, describing how he felt when he and his colleagues proposed the idea of fasting to Yeb Sanyo. I don't know, just looking at that man in his eyes as he seemed very humbled by what we had said was incredibly moving. What, what did you say? Um, and I went up to him and I was like, listen, like we are very interested in joining you in solidarity and abstaining from eating throughout the conference. And he was like, you don't have to do that. And I said, no, we want to. And he just just looked at me. And it was, that was enough. (laughs) He didn't need to say anything. And it was, it was just a beautiful human experience. 
Civil society and youth broadly embarked on a fast in solidarity with Yeb. Um, my name is Lucas Burdick, and I'm here with Earthen Brackets, a student group out of College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. It seems like a small gesture. At the end of the day, it feels very good to be doing this with a group of people, worshiping each other, and absolutely making a meaningful, powerful statement. My name is Colin Reese. I'm a Sustainist Delegate from the United States. Taking that stand, to both stand with the people in the Philippines, to show that someone cares about them, and to show them that there is support for, for the trials that they're facing, and that we recognize that we need to fix these problems. Anita Rahman. We were very deeply moved by the Philippines delegation's decision to fast, that we decided to support them by also doing a fast. So were you one of the people from Sustain Us that was fasting? <laughs> I fasted. How, how long of a fast was it? I did a two-day fast. Um, okay. Other people I was with did longer. Other people did liquid diet. And I stopped because I was kind of freaked out because um, I was no longer feeling hungry. I was really tired as well. We were working like 20 hours a day. It was just completely insane. Anyway, I chose to fast because I was really moved by Yeb. Now that you've been introduced to Lucas, Colin, and Anita, you might be wondering, how did they hold up? So I began my fast on Monday evening, and it is now Thursday midday. I'm coming up on 72 hours, and it's not easy. I mean, I'm feeling a little tired or a little weaker. I really want to eat food when I walk past it, but my conviction is still strong, and I have a lot of support from all, all of my friends back home, all of my family members, and everybody else who's fasting. I still believe in what I'm doing. I'm fasting for the third day in a row. How long has it been since you've eaten food? Uh, I had lunch on Monday. So right now, I'm sitting in the lunchroom where everyone is eating around me, but it stopped bothering me. <laughs> you know, I don't even feel like cheating and eating at all because, you know, just to defeat the purpose for me, I am having trouble focusing. Um, I haven't had a lot of sleep, but this is a reality for a lot of children around the world who have to go to school and who have trouble learning. I have no right to complain at all. So sleep's not important. Food's not important. <laughs> I know it's important for my body, it's just not important for and it's that my, sense of, off. my sense of drive. <laughs> the fast was both spiritual and strategic. Anita was doing it from something of a Buddhist-like, sacrificial, self-negating perspective. I'll call her a Yeb disciple. But to some observers, the gesture itself was most symbolic to the media and the public. I think we can make a stand and say important things that need to be said. And I don't know if anybody in these halls who isn't a negotiator can really do too much more than that. It's what we have. People in the climate movement like to talk a lot about people power. Now, we don't have money, we don't have 11,000 felt bags to donate to the conference of the parties. We have bodies and we have time. And I think that's what we're giving, and that's what's, what we can do. As a negotiation strategy, Yeb Sanyo's fast was a gamble. On one hand, he won respect from his counterparts and remained tenacious, but there was always this question of capacity. When you commit, you reduce your ability to contribute most productively. Here's what Colin thought about reducing capacity while fasting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point you made about being ineffective, because it is a capacity-reducing action. I mean, 
I felt okay so far and still feel like I'm doing good work, but especially as we move into week two, if I continue to do this, I'm not going to be able to add as much value to, to the work that we're doing. I'm not going to be able to do as much simply because I need to sleep more and I'll be more exhausted, that sort of thing. In a way, it's a calculated decision because we truly think we can affect change by doing this. We think we can spread this message to a broader audience, bring some media attention. It's interesting because I think that when there's been like fast for Darfur mm -hmm. and um, other types of sort of symbolic fasting, I think sometimes exactly. some of the criticism it gets is like, what is this actually going to do? Like, what, how is this going to help? You might as well use your energy to help in some other way, as opposed to just depleting your energy as a way of making a statement. But I thought it was really interesting what you said about spiritual cleansing, because I had never thought about why it might be powerful on a personal level to do that. Like, I had always been skeptical of those types of things because I'm like, I don't see how this is making an impact. But in that situation, making a symbolic statement at that type of event does make a difference because public opinion really does matter when it comes to making decisions about these things. So if you're representing public opinion and public opinion is saying, we really care about this, then that actually does help. Mm -hmm. But like in this situation... I could see why a lot of people would have made that decision. Mm. What I think made this successful was that this was a negotiator who was fasting. It's one thing to run into people who are fasting. It's another thing when a negotiator is in closed door negotiations and he's fasting and everyone, everyone in the room knows he's fasting and everyone in the room knows he's also fighting his ass off for something. From the civil society perspective, the fast was a success. Stories were written, a narrative arc for a year had been mapped out, and some lifestyles were genuinely changed. The fast defined the Warsaw stop on the touring three-ring cop circus. As of November 28, 2013, the day Ryan was interviewed, there were 600,000 people around the world who in 10 days had signed a petition following Yeb's speech. Thousands more fasted that day. Fast for the Climate has grown into a global movement with participation of youth groups, environmental groups, and faith-based groups who all want urgent action on climate change by governments this year. The fasting takes place in the form of a monthly event with thousands of participants from 92 countries as of January 2015. I learned about it an hour before he gave his speech. Perhaps what is most remarkable about the whole thing is that Yeb Sanyu had not planned any of this. This is Liddy from Jubilee South Asia Pacific. Um, I'm Liddy Nakpil. I'm actually one of the civil society observers here and I'm coordinating regional movement or regional alliance of movements in Asia. Who's she works closely with Yeb. It was not like he'd been planning for it for some time. It was a decision that he made just very shortly before. Yeah, it was for many of us a very personal thing because we have relatives, friends, colleagues in these areas. Liddy wanted me to highlight to the American audience that a few Americans came up with the idea. I think, yes, especially in the U.S. for them to know. I mean, you know, it should shame them that they're not doing as much as you are. And for other groups, they would have much pride in the fact that it was a U.S. youth group that did it first. So you should, you should say that.
Yib Sanyo has since become a climate justice superstar, according to media outlets like The Guardian. 300 delegates fasted with him at the talks, as well as the Archbishop of Canterbury and the head of the Church of Sweden. Sanyo continues as the Philippines climate commissioner, yet he's now invited to speak to crowds of thousands, asked to advise and visit governments, and signs letters with Nobel Prize winners. You're tuned into stories and surprises from the UN climate change negotiations that took place in November 2013. From Warsaw, this is Green Grid Radio. Part two, all negotiations are inherently unequal. In this type of situation where you have a a bunch of countries coming together, all trying to negotiate and come to some kind of agreement, who cares about the youth? Like, what are they doing there? I'm still, you know, thinking about this. (laughs) I fundamentally believe, especially with an issue like climate change, that youth have perhaps the biggest stake in the, the game of anybody. I think what's kind of a fascinating paradigm is that the youth are not delegates, the youth are not negotiators, the youth cannot do that. It's They're not late enough in their career, they're not professionals yet, they don't have the skill set. So this is like this weird paradox that all the people that are making these decisions are kind of like older people <laughs> who might have a, a smaller stake in the game. Okay, well, if, if the youth cannot negotiate, then they can certainly influence things somehow, right? What we have always strived to do at Green Good Radio is tap into the power of narrative to humanize things, concepts, ideas that may be too abstract or render them a slight bit more meaningful or relevant to, you know, people like my mom or grandma. Well, when we found out that there was a group of youth doing just that at these UN climate negotiations, we had to find out more. But instead of merely a story about cop storytellers, this chapter is mostly on differences between generations and differences among countries. My name is Hamzat Lawal. I'm the communications officer for the African Youth Initiative on Climate Change. I'm here with the Adopt and Negotiate Project Track in Nigeria. As a part of the Adopt and Negotiator platform, Hamzat is a self-identified youth from the Global South. Here's another anonymous Adopt and Negotiator delegate describing this form of activist cop storytelling. Adopt, so Negotiator trackers, I think they're like seen as people who take like take jargon and simplify it for youth back home to be able to understand. They've established a certain credibility. Your influence as a tracker. Then your sphere of influence as a tracker here would probably be more focused on media and audiences back home and like trying to... to and on the surface, it just seems like you're following around negotiators blogging, but there is this bigger ultimate goal, which is not directly discussed which is actually trying to influence the negotiations. Trying to influence the negotiators. The negotiations yeah. somehow through, like, connecting with their specific countries. Um, and Hamzad and the other so-called trackers for Adopt a Negotiator are very effective. I remember back in Nigeria when over 1,500 children were at the verge of losing their life due to the effect of um, lead poisoning. We were able to use social media to get the president's attention. We were able to get a senator to visit the community in the rural area who now went back to the president and told him he needs to release the funds to remediate the environment. Hamzat says that since it is difficult to get appointments with policymakers in Africa, the best way to engage with them is through social media. 
he's been able to use Twitter to engage with the senator. And it turns out that that senator actually reads his blog posts. When youth deploy social media, it can be a weapon for good. You have to mobilize from bottom up. You have to first of all engage the grassroots. And after your engagement with the grassroots, then you now approach the policymakers. So what happened this year with Hamzad at the event? It's inspiring because when I got here last week, I found out that my lead negotiator was not here. He was stuck back in Abuja due to logistical reasons. The current minister does not see climate change as an important avenue to send our lead negotiator to come and negotiate on our behalf. I was able to use the Adopt a Negotiator platform to send a message across to them. And, and within 48 hours... Our lead negotiator is already here and negotiating on our behalf. Wow. Yes. So that's, wow. the, that's, the, that's a huge impact and success for me. When he got here, I was not privileged to meet with him because he has to catch up with what he has missed. He shook me and said thank you for making me be in this meeting. That's very funny because I had to start laughing when he left, not in, in his presence, you know. My minister came and he does not understand what is actually going on. He hosted a Nigerian delegation meeting, which I was privileged to attend. Hamzat says in this delegation meeting, it was clear that the minister did not understand climate negotiations and spent his whole speech speaking about how Nigerians could receive funding to attend these kinds of meetings. In the UN community, it's quite unfortunate. Hamzat's storytelling activism approach with Adopt a Negotiator has been successful in Nigeria. The differences between the Global North and the Global South can underscore his successes as a youth influencing a UN process. So that, like, if you're with, from Kenya, for example, like, you probably have a really good shot of influencing negotiations by just track, like, trying to directly talk with negotiators and work with them. Mm -hmm. And they're open to that. But if you're from, like, let's say, I don't know, Poland or mm -hmm. the US, Nothing you say at that moment, like in this conference, will affect the way you think. Yeah. Nothing you but the differences between Global North and Global South also influence negotiations among nations within the UN process. At the last day, I think um, the negotiators went straight from something like 3 p.m. on Friday until 6 or 7 p.m. on Saturday evening. Just Without sleeping? I think there may have been, I don't know, 20, 30-minute breaks. It's not only a matter of delegation preparedness, but also a matter of delegation size. Yeah, this is the thing, too. The U.S. and other rich countries, they have the money and the, the staff to send, you know, whole groups of people. But if you want to talk about that for, like, some small African nation... Uh, these advantages are just like negotiation advantages exist because the U.S., yeah, Todd Stern can take a four-hour nap and if his substitute knows exactly what to do, but a, a poor nation cannot do that because there's one guy or two, two people there. 
Okay, so this isn't exactly intentional bullying, right? It's, it's not like the Americans or Europeans should bring fewer staff than they can afford to simply in order to level the playing field with the other countries. I want to play a little bit of audio coverage I found on a blog on the internet. This is from the PAMACC News Africa blog. And it's about the Poland COP president denying visa to Africans coming to COP. civil society has been... Many people have been refused visas to come here. We don't know, and we demand explanations from the UNFCCC secretariat. Is it an, a deliberate attempt to keep off African civil societies? This, we need an explanation from the executive secretary of the UNFCCC. And this, we are talking The reason about I bring this up is that I could also imagine the U.S. denying visas in this situation to inadvertently handicap the global south. Yes, this is Europe. A lot of people want to visit Europe because it's a developed economy. You know, you have access to electricity, you have good roads, good transport system. But yes, we want to come here and learn from them. But unfortunately, they did not even provide us that platform. What has been the response back home when people have found out that Nigerians can't come to COP? Well, CSOs have mobilized themselves. We have an online petition which has over 500 signatures on it. We have gone to the embassy to engage with them in person, but they've shut their doors on us. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to give us reasons why they denied my colleague's visa. And I'm working on having an appointment with the Secretary General of the UNFCCC, Christiana Figures. Christiana Figueras is the head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat, so she's responsible for organizing COP and always giving important speeches. And draw her attention to this because this has happened in the previous COP and we've been promised over time that it will not repeat itself. So what happened when we were supposed to go to Paris and influence a binding treaty and were denied that opportunity? Okay, so we had two stories here, the story of the youth versus the non-youth and the story of the poor nations versus the rich nations. Uh, so it's clear that the, the youth can actually have a role here, storytelling, grassroots organizing, social media, but we're still not sure about what might help the poorer nations stand a fighting chance in negotiations with the wealthier governments. This is Green Grid Radio, I'm Adam Pearson, and you're listening to Nuggets from the UN Climate Change Negotiations. Part 3. This means Warsaw. Which wars are still being waged in the UN climate negotiations? The 19th United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties took place in Warsaw in the middle of November 2013. The 20th COP was in Lima in December 2014. The 21st will be in Paris in December 2015. Why is there a 19th International Conference on Climate Change? This is our crash course on the COP. We're going to UN, UN school. school. The United Nations and its formal processes exist to address issues inherently international. Climate change affects the whole world, not just the countries with a lot of pollution. The UN offers a floor for small and less developed countries to contribute and participate. In other words, it's not just the U.S. and China dominating discussions in time. The underrepresented 
like those from small island states, get some representation through people like Yepsanyo. They get a chance to speak. There have been 20 cops or conferences Cop of the parties. Conference of parties. Which were, in most simplistic terms, initially convened in response to the first IPCC assessment report, where the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which called for action on climate change. The first treaty that emerged from the negotiations with legally binding CO2 emissions reduction requirements was the Kyoto Protocol. It was adapted in 1997 and went into full effect in 2005. Some of us may have heard about how the U.S. failed to ratify the treaty in the Senate. Without commitment from the U.S., China, and India, Kyoto had little teeth. We, our emissions. we also recognize the other part of the story, that the rest of the world emits 80% of all greenhouse gases, and many of those emissions come from developing countries. The Kyoto Protocol is based on the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. Those nations with the greatest historical responsibility for warming would have the lion's share of responsibility to reduce emissions. The challenge today is that the developing countries have increased emissions so much since Kyoto has been negotiated that the scales of historic responsibility for cumulative emissions will move beyond the break-even point by 2030, according to Cornell University researchers. Copenhagen in 2009 was supposed to finalize a new international treaty for the period following Kyoto, or 2012 to 2020. Negotiations broke down, though, and an even smaller group of nations that signed Kyoto in the first place signed on to a Kyoto Protocol second KP2. commitment period. Kyoto Protocol second commitment period. Since Copenhagen, there have been timelines to set up timelines to set up and ensure a meaningful post-2020 agreement. Warsaw's function was to clarify how funds would be dispersed to ensure both mitigation, or reduction of emissions, and adaptation, or dealing with climate change. How, how both of these types of targets could be met during this post-2020 period. At the very least, we can say that Yeb Sanyo got the topic of loss and damage onto the table. Loss and damage is the idea that if we were to stop emitting greenhouse gases today, there still is enough CO2 in the atmosphere that some island nations will be underwater. And so the question is how much the rest of the world should pay for their relocation, for their immigration, for the financial losses and so on. The discussion about loss and damage is how much money should be put aside for that. Put aside now. Shit has already hit the fan, so to speak. So, yeah, it'll be yeah. it'll be upon us. Yeah, because basically the current money division is mitigation and adaptation through the UN, and so there's an argument that is being made that loss and damage requires a separate uh, pillar, so to speak, that we should be putting a lot of money into that section too, because climate change has already happened and will already. So that's. People from small island nations like Yepsanyo were fighting for that third pillar. The frustration in Warsaw was tangible. 
and from what I have heard from my colleagues in Lima, the feeling was similar. If the UN process doesn't result in an ambitious agreement or outcome in Paris, many environmental NGOs are concerned that it will be too late to avoid a 2 degrees Celsius limit in post-industrial temperature increase. If you want to keep up with the latest in the UN climate negotiations process or learn more, we'll provide some links on our blog, which, of course, is at greengridradio.org. episode was produced by yours truly, Adam Pearson, and the wonderful Diane Wu. Thanks to Mallory Smith for co-hosting, everyone else from the Greenbeard Radio family for the pizza and the beer, and all our guests this week from Sustain Us and the Big Circus. But special thanks to everyone who helped me take this across the finish line. It's been quite a journey. Follow us on Twitter at Green Grid Radio. Uh, music today provided most generously by the Creative Commons via freemusicarchive.org. We link you to these artists like usual on our website, which is again greengridradio.org. Send us your fan mail too. It's info at greengridradio.org. So until next time, this means Warsaw. And all the environmental center alcoholic. Cause you need to because like what are you gonna do with like ipcc reports and shit? like you see that like how are you not gonna drink after reading that <laughs> ever <laughs>